you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism. It's the website, Jews for Judaism in Canada, JewsforJudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Hello, John Oren. Shalom, shalom. Nice to have you back, my friend. We're continuing to investigate the, the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. We're getting near the end. We are in Zechariah. This is part three of the book of Zechariah. We're kicking off from, uh, cha- well, we're in chapter 12 now. How about that? Oh, boy. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that's where we're kicking off from. On the uh, original list of 365, that is number 353. On the New Revised Standard Version supplied to us by Bill and Carmen of the RefinersFire.org, that is number 288. And, uh, well, it begins like this, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says... And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will look on him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, the uh, the list connects that with uh, in the New Testament with John 19, 34 to 37. It says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, Michael. That's why these things were done. Quote, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, quote, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. And that is, of course, the quote that we're dealing with now. Now, the messianic prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, Michael, is that the Messiah's body would be pierced. Okay. I mean, that's uh, certainly something that is obviously very, very appealing for, uh, you know, people with a Christological bent to try and Mm. connect with with Jesus. Um, I think what we're going to see tonight is that the, the, the modus operandi of the list maker is basically, and I think they, they mention this uh, in their blurb, is that they're really trying to find illusions and connections, yes, but really of a preconceived idea they have to our text, rather than really trying to understand the actual text itself. Um, I think we're going to see that you know when you try to really uh, grapple with these texts from Zechariah, um, you know, in terms of what they actually are speaking about, we'll see how disconnected they are from these illusions and connections. Um, again, I think if you go back to the very first uh, piece that we did together a long time ago, we mentioned this, you know, parable of the person that shoots the arrows into a tree and then mm-hmm. draws the target around them. So yes. that's really what's happening here. There's no real effort to try to really grapple with what is Zachariah actually talking about. But what happens is, you know, there's this belief that they have that Jesus was crucified as the Messiah. And then when they read Zechariah talking about someone being pierced, well, that's got to be Jesus. And it, it's sort of a very naive way. It's a, it's a clumsy way of, of studying the Bible. And we'll see tonight, especially in this first one, how clumsy it is. So basically, um, it's as simple as really understanding the context of the chapter. The context of chapter 12 here really rules out Jesus altogether. 
um, the chapter begins in verse 1. People usually forget that. The chapter doesn't begin in verse 10. Um, it says, this is the prophecy of the word of God concerning Israel. Now, could have said it's a prophecy concerning the Messiah, or it could have said it's a prophecy concerning the whole world. You know, mm-hmm. from a Christian point of view, the death of Jesus is not simply a prophecy about Israel. You know, for them, it's a global, it's a universal phenomenon. So, um, the chapter goes on to really talk about a, a a time when all the nations of the world will come up and wage war against Jerusalem, and it's describing this you know incredible uh, siege, uh, literally of the entire world coming to really uh, to do battle with Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and it's an amazing chapter because uh, you know the Jewish people are going to cry out to God and basically. Uh, incredibly, really, they're going to win this battle. I mean, it's not what you would expect. Um, but it, w- one thing is clear, that the setting here is describing something that has absolutely nothing to do with the first century. Um, you know, there wasn't a worldwide siege of Jerusalem in the first century. It, Jerusalem was not being attacked by all the nations of the world. And so whoever's being pierced or stabbed in this chapter... Um, it's an event which has not happened yet. We haven't yet had this. Uh, it's really, I mean, anyone that studies Zechariah understands that these chapters at the end of the book are describing the end times. It's describing, hmm. uh, you know, future events. It has not happened to us yet. Um, and so certainly it's, it's, it has nothing to do at all with what happens in the first century. Um, so that really, that's almost the end of the discussion right there. But we, we should, I think we owe it to the to the listeners to try to understand. So what's well, we going do. on? We do, don't we? Because the, the thing is, I don't know if you would agree, but is this in the, I mean, this verse here, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, is this in the top five, perhaps? Oh, yeah. Of, you would agree. Oh, okay. Yeah. Of, of, uh, okay. Because this is really one of those go-to verses, and uh, Christians love to cite this as a, a proof text of prophecy about Jesus. And uh, I guess uh, if listeners have a, a Christian translation in front of them, I don't know if it's the same, depending on various translations. Uh, I'm, of course, looking at the New King James, uh, my Nelson Study Bible. And it has to be pointed out that uh, there's a little bit of trickery with the, the capitalization, as is often the case. But uh, it says, um, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me. Now, me is capitalized. Whom they pierced, yes, they will mourn for him. Him is capitalized as one who mourns for... Now, I've got in italics his only son. His and son is in italics. Now, does that mean that that's not actually in the text? I don't think that... Well, his may not be in the text, but an only son is in the text. Um, And, you know, the the real problem here is not so much the capitalization, but, you know, if I was an editor, (laughs) I almost, my dream job in my next life, Uh, I mean, this, this is the kind of verse where, you know, if I had a red pen, I would have been all over this verse in Zechariah because it's just got all these... Uh, pronouns, and it's you have yeah. to really sort of weave your way through, um, you know, me, find out who they and him, to. and they. Yeah. It's got all these pronouns, and the other problem is that there's a phrase in here. There's a phrase in the Hebrew that is totally missed by literally every single Christian translation, um, and, and I'll explain that in a minute. But it, you know, most of the passages we've done, we've done quite a few. We've done mm. almost 300 together. 
Mm. Usually, aside from, let's say, the virgin birth or something like that, usually the, the question of translation has not figured uh, heavily into the, into the uh, misunderstanding. Here, there really is almost across the board among Christian translations a failure to understand sort of the, the syntax and the nuance of the Hebrew. So, um, the first thing, again, I wanted to just get off from the start of the segment here is that this is a chapter that's dealing with something that hasn't happened yet. So, whoever is being hurt here, <laughs> this is not something that's happened yet. Now, let me, now, yeah. just to, sorry to interrupt, but I'm, with, with you telling me that, I thought, I'm just going to have a look at my art scroll here. Uh, and so, this is what it says, this is the way it's presented, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, I will pour out... Uh, upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look towards me, capital M, because of those whom they have stabbed, it says. They will look over him, and that's a lowercase him, as one mourns over an only. Now, in brackets, they have child, which leads me to believe that uh, that's inserted into the text. But, I mean, I guess that's fair enough to mourn over an only. Uh, and it goes on to say, and be embittered over him like the embitterment over a, and in brackets, deceased, over a firstborn. So it's clearly uh, in reference to a child. So there is, there, there's lots of different translations and uh, different um, yeah, it's, it's edited actually, versions. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's not an easy verse to parse out. Um, but the critical piece really is um, the question of who is pierced. I mean, who is the subject here? Who is being pierced? Um, the way virtually all Christian translations have this is to read it, um, the look to me who was pierced. I mean, obviously in this verse, it's God that's speaking. God is the speaker in the verse. And so the, the way virtually all Christian translations have this is that it's saying that the, the people, the, obviously the people of Jerusalem, are going to look towards God who was pierced. Meaning that God is the one that's speaking, and he's saying they're going to look to me who they, mm -hmm. the enemies, pierced. Right? The piercers. Right? Mm -hmm. That really misses the, the actual nuance in the, of the Hebrew syntax. The, the critical phrase here is et asher. Et asher really means, it, it tells you that um, they're going to look to me, God is saying, not to me who was pierced, they're going to look to me concerning or about whom they have pierced. Right. I mean, that God is, is the, the, the phrase here, God is basically saying that the people are going to look towards me. That, that Obviously, what it's implying is they're going to look to me with hope or expectation or prayers or concerns, mm. But it's going to be about concerning, regarding mm -hmm. the pierced one or the pierced ones. We're going to see that that's one of the uh, things that has to be really clarified is actually is the, is, the, is the subject here a person or a group of people. But the point is that, that it's not God who is pierced here. It's that the people, they, will look to me, God is saying, not to me who was pierced, but to me concerning the pierced, those who were pierced, mm. let's say, or he who was pierced. So that's the first thing I think that it's just important to understand, that God is not speaking about himself as being pierced. Um, and I mean, and, and that should be obvious to so many people, and of course there are listeners right now going, well, of course, how utterly ridiculous to think that God has been pierced by a man. And that's exactly how Christian translations have it. So again, it's just important to understand that the Hebrew here, et asher, you see it, by the way, this phrase in, let's say, 1 Samuel thirty twenty three. 
as an example of it, it's it's sort of a, a modifying phrase that God here is saying that they're going to look to me, look at me, um, mm-hmm. but look to me uh, regarding or concerning who they have pierced, right? Who they have pierced. And the word who they have pierced, again, is a little bit vague. It's not clear if it's who, the, the one who was pierced, or whom those who were pierced. That's not clear. That we'll have to, we'll, we'll, we'll clear that up in a moment. Um, so, again, that's very critical for us to understand the very outset. It's not God who is being pierced. Uh, the people are looking to God concerning whom was pierced. Right. Now, let's ask that question now. Who is pierced or stabbed? So, I think the simplest way, possibly, of reading this passage is to think about it contextually. There's a war going on here. There's a battle. It's not a, a, a simple battle because we're outnumbered. The whole world is basically coming up against Jerusalem. And you would expect that in such a battle, there are going to be many uh, Jewish soldiers that are going to fall. So a simple way of reading it is that, that the people in Jerusalem, the inhabitants there, who have not died, are going to look to God concerning those who were pierced, those who were killed in the battle. Um, now, if that's the case, though, it presents a little bit of a problem because if it's talking about all those who were killed, then why does it say they're going to mourn for him like they mourn for an only son? Right? That presents a little bit of a problem. So the answer to that is actually not a big problem. It's not huge because we've seen already many times in Scripture that the Bible speaks about the people of Israel as a corporate entity especially, by the way, in the context of suffering. So, for example, we saw that Isaiah 53, which speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord, and it speaks about this servant who suffers, and all the pronouns in that chapter are him and he and him and he. So, it it is difficult to understand how could that whole chapter be speaking about the nation of Israel. Um, But the reality is that we see throughout the book of Isaiah that the servant is the people of Israel. For example, in in chapter 43, verse 10, he says that you are my servant and my witnesses. So the servant is a group of people. It's not a person, it's a people. And that's why throughout the previous chapters in Isaiah, he identifies specifically the servant is Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, In Daniel chapter 7, we saw not long ago that, I think in verse 13, the son of man, like one who is like a man, again, it sounds like, an individual who will be given uh, honor and glory and dominion and rulership. So it sounds like Daniel seven thirteen is speaking about a person, mm-hmm. but when the, the angel later explains to Daniel what his vision was, he explains, no, the Son of Man is not a person, it's a people. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just rife throughout the, the Hebrew Scriptures that the nation of Israel, usually actually, it's not exceptional, but it usually is spoken of as an individual, as an as a uh, individual person, uh, we saw that in the book of Exodus. You, God says, um, you'll say to Pharaoh, uh, "Israel is my son, my firstborn." Not Israel mm. is my children. Uh, Hosea chapter eleven. We also saw this verse when Israel was a child. I loved mm. him, him, not they. I loved them. Yeah. So this is just throughout the scripture. So this, I, I think, the simplest way of reading this is that the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will look towards God concerning them, those who were pierced. Um, and we're going to mourn for those people as if we mourn for an only son. Um, and that's not a difficult way of reading the, the passage. 
a second way of now, reading. Yes, I'm sorry. Can I, let me interrupt you there because uh, uh, let me just read that one more time and try and get this straight in my head. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will look upon, uh, look towards God concerning those, now I've got in the New King James, those whom they pierced. Now, does that talk about a civil war? Is it talking about the nations? Obviously, in verse 9, it shall be that in that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Is the nations the they that pierced? It seems that way, yes. Okay, that makes the most sense. Beautiful. So, the Talmud suggests another way of reading it. This is in Tractate Sukkah, ver- mm-hmm. uh, page 52a. It says, no, it is speaking about an individual. Um, the Talmud says that, that in, the, in this end-time battle, there's going to be, incredibly, only one casualty in the war. And it's pretty weird. I mean, usually in a war, you have a number of casualties. But the Talmud says, in this end-time battle, which obviously will be miraculous, you don't have you know, the inhabitants of Jerusalem fending off the entire world attacking them. But the Talmud says there is going to be one person who will be killed. It'll be... Uh, the military leader of the people will tragically fall in this battle. And the Talmud says that this leader will be an anointed one from the house of Joseph, what we refer to in Talmudic literature as Mashiach ben Yosef, the mm-hmm. Messiah from the, from, mm-hmm. the, uh, from the tribe of Joseph. And uh, it's interesting, this is the only real uh, sort of reference or allusion to such a character in the entire Bible. Um, This is sort of the source for it right here. So there will be this anointed one. Again, we have to realize that in the Bible, the Messiah is not, you know, like the name of the last name of one person in history, like Jesus Christ becomes his last name. Um, Messiah simply means an anointed one. So there were anointed priests and there were anointed prophets. And so this will be an anointed leader from the tribe of Joseph, and he's going to tragically die in this battle. And it's speaking about this great mourning that will take place for this fallen leader. And what's important is to understand what is this all about. And so what the rabbis teach is that this incredible shock to see, well, it's just not an uh, an anonymous soldier. This is going to be their great leader. This is the one that leads them into battle. And tragically, he'll be the only one to die. It's going to shock the nation into an incredible mourning. And the morning will basically lead the people to national repentance. It's going to be a wake-up call. It's going to shock them into essentially seeing that they have to really direct their lives totally to God. And this national morning will lead to the ultimate redemption, the coming of the Messiah, Son of David, the Messiah that we speak about that will bring about a world of redemption and peace. And that's important because the scriptures always tell us that the messianic age will only come as a response to the national repentance and national revival spiritually of the Jewish people. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We see it in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 20. We see it in specifically the the prophet Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, which Mm -hmm. speaks about the redemption coming as a response to the mourning of the people. So the way the Talmud reads this is that it is speaking about the wounding, the piercing, the stabbing of this one great leader who will die in battle, which will bring about the kind of national mourning and repentance that will basically prepare the way for the uh, complete redemption and the coming of the Messiah. Now, one of the, the textual clues that sort of uh, substantiates this reading is that um, it, it says in, in, right here in the next verse that the mourning for this one that will fall will be like the mourning in, for, for the 
uh, what does it say in verse 11 here? It'll be like the intense morning, like the morning of Hadadrimon and the morning at the Valley of Megiddo. Mm, and these yeah, are sort so of, uh, you know, what are these references to? It's not clear what the Valley of Hadadrimon is. It's no clear reference in Scripture. But we do have a very clear uh, parallel to this idea of the morning in the Valley of Megiddo because we see in the second book of Kings, chapter 23, verses 28 to 30, and Second Chronicles, chapter 35, verses 22 to 25, the very tragic story of the death of King Josiah in a mm-hmm. battle. Um, mm. And, you know, sort of the great leader, and he was very beloved. He was the one that led the Jewish people into a national repentance and to turning mm. away from idolatry. And tragically, he's killed in this battle with the Egyptians. And yeah. we're told specifically that there'll be a great mourning for him, and he was killed in the valley of Megiddo. So he, it's speaking here, and, and this is, one, again, one of the reasons why, aside from the fact that this is talking about an end-time battle, which is, can't be referring to Jesus, but it's talking about a military leader who falls in battle. And again, it's not referring to uh, someone who was crucified like Jesus was. It's about someone who falls in a battle. Um, so th- this is really the Talmudic approach to reading this chapter, that there is the, the, the death of this uh, a military leader, and it really paves the way to the ultimate redemption through the national repentance of the people. And Rabbi Yisrael Chaim Blumenthal actually found mm. a very interesting parallel to this, um, to the only other person, by the way, in Scripture who is described as being pierced and then mourned for. I mean, you only see one other place in the entire Bible where someone is described as pierced. By the way, using the exact same Hebrew word, there are a number of Hebrew words for piercing, but the word here in Zechariah 12.10 is dakaru, that they pierce, dakaru. And in 1 Samuel 31.4, it refers to Saul, King Saul. Um, he speaks about falling, he'll, he'll fall on his own sword, udikaruni, same exact Hebrew word, same root mm-hmm. actually. So what happens is King Saul, who was the first Jewish king, he falls basically in a battle um, of sorts. And um, the first thing basically that, that King David does in his ruling as a king in Second Samuel chapter 1 verse 17 is he leads the people in mourning for Saul. Mm-hmm. So what Rabbi Blumenthal points out is that you see that there is this pattern of a, a tremendous national mourning over a great leader that was pierced, and it becomes a preface to, uh, leads into, uh, the rulership of King David, who is the antecedent of the Messiah himself, the Messiah, son of David. Um, and that's what happens here in Zechariah 12, that the falling of this Mashiach ben Yosef, by the way, uh, Shaul, Saul, was also from the house of Yosef. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, well, not from the house of Joseph, but basically from the same mother. And uh, you have here sort of the parallel that the mourning for Saul brings about the rule of David, and in Zechariah, the mourning for the anointed one from the house of Joseph brings about ultimately the reign of the Messiah, son of David. Right. Um, now, not done yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Um, you know, what I was surprised, I actually was relieved a little bit 
because it's obvious that the, the the sort of the the kryptonite here that's so attractive yet so deadly to the christological reading is just the idea of the it serves serves the word piercing and you know it's sort of the, they can't resist any it's a magnet that's a big to the christian eyes like it's an a electro, magnet to the christian eyes electromagnet i mean it's so strong hmm. um i i'm i was relieved that the list maker didn't uh you know make the same blunder that so many people make which was to include the next chapter 13 Verse six, yes. right? <laughs> so thank God they didn't include that one. Um, they had the, the the foresight to realize that that chapter is speaking about the piercing of false prophets. Well, well, did they? Because they do include verse seven. We're going to oh, be getting to that yes. anyway. That's going to. They sort of didn't directly fall into it, but they, no, yeah, they, they, they indirectly, indirectly fell into it. Mm. Um, now, I want to go a little bit further in trying to see how the list maker tries to connect this chapter in, in Zechariah to John chapter 19. When you try to do that, when you try and connect uh, this chapter in Zechariah to John 19, it's really a train wreck. I mean, it, it, it is such a train wreck, uh, it's a little bit scary. Um, we first of all mentioned already that Zechariah is describing an end-time war and not speaking about something that happens in the first century. Now, the other thing that happens is that in Zechariah, you see that it's describing God saying they're going to look to me regarding who was pierced and mourn for him. So there's clearly, you know, a difference between God here saying they're going to look to me and they're going to mourn for him. Obviously, hmm. that's why, by the way, it's not God who was pierced because they're not going to mourn for me. God is not saying right, of course. that, you know, that I was pierced and they're going to mourn for me. It's very clear I, I should have said this before. This is sort of what makes it clear that the 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 one or the ones who were pierced is not God because they're not mourning for God. They're going to mourn for Him, right? Mm-hmm. Who was the one that was pierced or the ones the that victim. were pierced? They're exactly. mourning for the victim, of course. But John is sort of, I guess, can't handle this distinction between one subject and the next subject. So when you go back to reading it in John, he changes the text. To say they'll look on him who was pierced, not they're going to look on me who was pierced. Um, Now, it's very, very difficult to unpack the pronouns in this verse and the sequence of of words here according to the way that John reads it. Um, The way I guess we would normally read it, um, I'm sorry, the way I guess John is reading it is to say, they, Israel, will look towards me, God, mm-hmm. because of, now I'm going to translate it properly at least, uh, because of whom, Jesus, they, the Romans, have pierced, and they're going to mourn for him, Jesus. That seems to be the way John is reading the, the passage. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, what's strange about it is that John seems to be reading it to be saying, they, the soldiers, meaning that when you read it in Zechariah, it's, it's they, Israel, is going to look towards God concerning mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. pierced. In John, it's the Roman soldiers that are looking on Jesus at the cross, not the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And mm-hmm. so when you try to connect John's reading with Zechariah, it, it's just, it, it simply doesn't work. He has it basically that they, the soldiers, will look towards me, God, because of whom they have pierced, they, the Romans, have pierced, and then the verse goes on saying, and they're going to mourn for him? I mean, the Roman soldiers are going to mourn for Jesus? Um, not likely. They're the ones that wanted to kill him. Um, 
it, it, it's a very difficult passage when you try to line up John with Zechariah uh, to, to work out. The only one other thing I'm going to mention, and this is sort of incidental, um, is that John also made the, the sort of absurd blunder of saying that this verse um, fulfilled two things, right? Not just that it fulfilled the passage in Zechariah, but he says it fulfilled the, the passage in the, in the Tanakh, which says, no bone of it shall be broken. Um, yes, we addressed that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's obviously, a, a, again, a, another blunder, because it's referring there to the Paschal Lamb. None mm. of its bones could be broken, but, um, you know, it's not referring to the death of the Messiah. And um, the P.S. is that you know, it seems at least, according to John's reading, that there's sort of a concern that Jesus conformed to all the laws of the sacrifices in the Bible, um, so that you see he's saying that since he was the Paschal Lamb, none of his bones could be broken, so fortunately the Romans didn't break his bones. But um, when you try to, to sort, of, sort of make that consistent with the laws of sacrifices in the Bible, Jesus really didn't fulfill any of the other laws of the of biblical course. sacrifices, his body wasn't burnt. He wasn't burnt on. He wasn't sacrificed on the altar. He wasn't sacrificed by priests. But that's really sort of tangential to tonight's discussion. Mm. Um, that's really, I think, a short treatment of that the first piece in Zechariah. It makes uh, quick work of the next two that <laughs> that jump off the same verse, doesn't it? Because uh, the next, what what the, what the list is attempting to do, uh, it cites as uh, the, the next verse that it connects it with in the New Testament is John chapter ten verse thirty, which merely says, "I and my Father in one." The list maker uh, asserts then on the list that the Messiah would be both God and man. Apparently, that's a prophecy fulfilled according to the list maker. The other one is that uh, it's connected with John chapter one verses ten and eleven, so which let's, says, let's, "Let's first address the the." Oh, you want to you want to take some time? Yeah. I thought there was a no-brainer. Okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, there are some some things just worth mentioning. First of all, the, the assertion is that this verse twelve ten in Zechariah teaches that the Messiah and God uh, would be both the Messiah would be both God and man. So first of all, when we read Zechariah, there's no mention of the Messiah in the passage. I mean, it would have helped the Christian uh, assertion here if the, the verse, the passage anywhere would have told you that it's speaking about the Messiah. Mm. Um, secondly, uh, there's no implication here in Zechariah that the person who is being pierced or the persons being pierced are God. I think that no, but you see, that's why I mentioned before the capitalization of certain uh, pronouns because uh, that's the trickery within the text. It's not in the Hebrew, obviously, but to the Christian reader, when they see those capitals, they go, aha, this is referring to deity. This must be referring to God, and this is referring to the, Jesus the Messiah, and and here they seem to be joined together as one and the same, and, and it has to be put down to uh, the assertion in the capitalization. Not, not just the capital. But again, the ignoring of that phrase, et asher, yes, concerning who was pierced. That, that, mm. Because when you leave that out and you sort of run the verse straight through, it sounds like it's saying, they're going to look to me, God, who was pierced, who they pierced. Mm. Um, so really, the, the assumption here that the Messiah is going to be both God and man um, is based upon certain assertions or assumptions, axioms that they assume here. Number one, they have to assume that this passage is about the Messiah, and they have to assume, basically, that the Messiah is God. But there's nothing in the passage that supports these assumptions. Mm. Um, and more importantly, 
and this is really important to remember, that the sweep of Scripture makes it very clear that the Messiah would not be God, meaning that we see in Isaiah chapter 11, we're told the Messiah will be someone who fears God. We see throughout the Bible, the, the Bible is differentiating, distinguishing between God and the Messiah. It actually even speaks about you know, God and his Messiah, God and mm-hmm. his anointed. Um, so it's very clear that um, you know in the Bible, the Messiah is not going to be God. And the thing that's really interesting to me about this one, that's why I didn't want to skip it, is that John 10.30 would not prove that Jesus was God. Meaning for Jesus to say, I am and the Lord are one, does not prove that he is God. Um, it's a very poor source in the New Testament because the Greek there is the word, I don't know how to pronounce it, H-E-N, I guess it's pronounced hen, mm. hen. Um, it really means in the Greek, at one or unified, in agreement with. Because Jesus right. says, for example, in John 17.22, that his followers are one. Um, right, of course. So, uh, it's really... They're not some sort of conglomerate of Siamese twins, they're just being of one mind, of one uh, mind in, yes. in agreement. Yes, at one with each other. Um, so, for a person to say, I am one with God, um, you know, it, it would not prove that person is, is God, it just simply means that they are close to God, they're at one with God. Um, so yeah one would hope so yes very good okay so okay. the next one uh, it is uh, it jumps off the same verse to John chapter 1 verse 10 to 11 he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him he came to his own and his own did not receive him the messianic uh, prophecy fulfilled according to the list is that uh, rejected messiah would be mourned oh what do you do with that okay so there's a lot about this one First of all, again, okay. let's just state for the record that there's nothing in this passage about the Messiah. About the that's, Messiah. that's an assumption that the list maker is making. Number two, um, the passage in Zechariah doesn't say anything about anyone being rejected. I mean, again, the, the list maker says the rejected Messiah would be mourned. But there's nothing in Zechariah about anyone being rejected. That's sort of injected here. Uh, mm-hmm. The rejection is being injected by the list maker. Third, um, Jesus was not mourned by all of Israel at that time. Mm. And so it's clearly not referring to um, someone, when you read about this passage, when it says they're gonna, is that the, the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to mourn, it, it's not t- talking about someone who was just mourned by their own family. It's speaking in Zechariah about a national mourning. And that clearly didn't happen at the time of Jesus. Um, so the belief really seems to be that in the future at some time, the Jewish people are going to mourn for Jesus in the future at the second coming of Jesus. But mm-hmm. that wouldn't be a prophecy fulfilled, meaning that the rejected Messiah would be mourned. They'd have to be saying here, yet yeah, it, it hasn't happened yet. They believe it's going to happen, but you can't include that then as a fulfilled prophecy. The other thing to remember is that Zechariah speaks about the mourning here will be like someone mourning for their only child who was lost. And what the list maker seems to assume is that the mourning of the Jewish people at the second coming of Jesus is going to be a mourning of regret, a mourning of shame, that Mm. we're going to be ashamed and regret the fact that we rejected the Messiah. Now that he comes back and we see what a mistake we made, that's not the kind of mourning that Zechariah describes. He describes a person mourning, a group of people mourning for someone 
that 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 person died like an only child that passed away. That's not a when you mourn for your only child. There's no regret or shame there. It's just literally a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, John chapter one that was quoted here mm-hmm. doesn't say anything about Jesus being mourned. It simply talks about he came to his own. They didn't uh, they didn't accept him. That speaks to the to the idea of him being rejected, but there's nothing in John chapter one which speaks about Jesus being mourned. Um, no. So it's not really; it wasn't even fulfilled in the um, imagination here of the list maker. No, <laughs> well put. Okay, now that brings us to the next verse uh, and the last verse that is discussed on the list. Uh, for the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. If it's all right, I think chapter 13 needs to be put in its context, and it's only a short chapter. Do you mind if I read the whole chapter? Go for it. It says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, as says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who begot him will, speak, will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through When he prophesies, and it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he will say, uh, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a farmer for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your hands? And then he will answer them, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and, I will, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones and it will come to pass in all the land, says the Lord. The two thirds of it shall be cut off and die, but one third of it shall be left in it. And I will bring one third through the fire. I will refine them. Quick, Carmen. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And then they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one, each one will say, the Lord is my God. Now, the verse in question, as I said, it's uh, Zechariah 13, verse 7. Uh, as you mentioned, Michael, it doesn't. It brushes over uh, verse six, which isn't always brushed over when uh, Christians are referring to messianic uh, prophecy. And I'll just read it again. Verse six says, "And one will say, What are these wounds between your hands?'" And he says, "Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends." To most Christians, if you read that to them, they would say, "Of course, that's a messianic prophecy." But the verse that the list is dealing with is the very next one. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And that is the verse that we're dealing with. Now, the list, first of all, connects that with John chapter 18, verse 11 in the New Testament, which says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And with that, the messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is uh, God's will the shepherd die for mankind. Michael. Okay. This is, uh, it's not an easy chapter, actually. Um, first of all, there's nothing in chapter 13 here 
that identifies the shepherd as the Messiah. Um, I think, that, again, that's a, a very serious, just an assumption that the list maker mm. is making. Um, as a matter of fact, the English Standard Version Study Bible um, doesn't see this reference to the shepherd as referring to Jesus. It actually connects the shepherd here to the worthless shepherd, the worthless shepherd that's mentioned in chapter 11, verse 17. Right. Um, which certainly from a Christian point of view would not be Jesus. Um, now, 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 with that, would, would we then be expected to read verse 7 with a sardonic tone, perhaps? You could. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's a, it, the, the, the passage here is not easy, and, and uh, anyone reading it has to sort of do a little bit of acrobatics to get through this. Um, but I think just to, you know, set the stage here, it's not a slam dunk that this reference to the shepherd is about the Messiah. Um, and again, I'm just quoting the English Standard Version to show that it's not just a spiritually blind Jew like myself that would say that. But here is a respectable <laughs> Christian commentary to the Bible that also doesn't see it as a reference to the Messiah or to Jesus. And they referred this to the, you know, worthless shepherds that were mentioned cha- previously in chapter 11. Um, now, it's interesting that the New Living Translation Study Bible um, is sort of honest here in the way they size up uh, you know, these quotes because they say the gospel writers connect portions of this passage to the scattering of Jesus' disciples after his crucifixion. Now, that's an honest assessment because... They're not saying that this passage is actually speaking about the scattering of Jesus' disciples. It's not saying that the passage in Zechariah really means that. They're just admitting that the gospel writers, like our list maker, found a connection, meaning that there is a, mm-hmm. an, uh, you know, a, an illusion, a similarity. You could say that you, know, you have similar themes. But the fact that there is a connection that you can make doesn't mean that you're necessarily reading the, the intention of the prophet Zechariah correctly. And they also the NLT study Bible admits that the gospel writers aren't able to connect this, uh, this connection they make isn't really to the, to the organic reading of the passage. They say it's the portions of the passage, meaning if you clip out, if you cherry pick certain words in this passage, it sounds like the Jesus story, um, but I would say, who cares? I think that you know you, you could almost do that experiment with anything in the world. You could read um, uh, one of the the plays of Shakespeare, and you could find words that appear in almost any other book in the world, and you could say, "See, I've found a connection between Shakespeare and between The Hobbit, or between Shakespeare mm, and you know the the songs of Elvis Presley." And I would say, "So who cares?" You know, the real question is: Is there not, not is there some kind of a, uh, of, of a soundbite connection, but is there a real connection? Meaning, is Zechariah really speaking about the, the death of the Messiah and the scattering of the disciples that, will, that, will take place, that, that took place in the first century? So um, I think that what we'll see is when we really read you know, Zechariah, it sort of eliminates that possibility. Um, the second thing to point out is that in Zechariah, it doesn't say anything about the shepherd dying for mankind. Again, that's what the list maker says here. The list maker says that God's will is the shepherd will die 
for mankind. Well, Zechariah says absolutely nothing. Um, it doesn't say the shepherd will die as for mankind. It doesn't say anything about the shepherd dying as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of mankind. Meaning that this is basically uh, the imagination of the list maker, but it has mm. no connection to the passage itself in Zechariah. Um, by the way, John eighteen eleven um, is really totally irrelevant to the issue at hand. Meaning uh, that passes in, in John eighteen eleven mm. uh, doesn't really help prove that Jesus was the subject of this passage in Zechariah. Um, what is unsurprising should be unsurprising by now is that the list maker just totally ignores the context of this verse uh, in Zechariah. First of all. Um, we already know from the previous chapter, and we know from the beginning of this chapter, that it's talking about the end times, meaning that when third, chapter 13 begins by talking about um, this fountain that God will open up and all the false prophets will be basically killed, um, you know, this whole chapter about the purity and prophecy, false prophecy ending, that hasn't happened yet. We still have all these false prophets running around. So chapter 13 is describing, just as chapter 12 did, something that's going to happen in the future, in the end times. It hasn't happened yet. Um, now, the verse mentions, this verse that's quoted, it mentions a shepherd, and it mentions one who is God's colleague. And there's no way in which the list maker really pays attention to that other personality here. Um, and when you read the rest of the chapter... When it speaks about one-third will remain, it sounds like two-thirds are going to be cut off. Um, you know, it, it, the, vast, the passage speaks about God turning his hand against the lesser leaders or the lesser ones. I mean, the, the, the list maker doesn't really have an approach to really reading this verse, this passage, organically, because all it's concerned with, all the list maker is concerned with is finding this illusion between the words about mm. the shepherd, um, you know, who is struck and the flock dispersing, but that's about all they're concerned with. And the rest of the passage has nothing to do with the time of Jesus. You didn't have in the first century, first of all, it wasn't the end times, and you also you didn't have, you know, this uh, anything about two-thirds of the population that are being perishing that are being cut off, one-third remaining. So what Christian readers would be forced to do is to, again, split the difference here and say, well, some of the words here are speaking about the first century when it speaks about the shepherd being struck and the flock dispersing, but everything else is going to happen you know, more than 2,000 years later. Um, you know, There's no reason why anyone reading this passage in chapter 13 would see within the words of the chapter any reason to assume that the, these events are events in, in the same verse, practically, that take place 2,000 years apart from each other. Um, so it's an artificial... It, it really actually it happens so often in the Christian Bible where they're forced to take, within one passage, say that part of it happened in the first century and the rest of it will happen in the future when Jesus comes back. There's just no reason again, within the passage, to, to make that kind of distinction. You mentioned uh, that the shepherd of 13.7 uh, uh, could very well be uh, the same shepherd that we read about in chapter 11 of Zechariah. Could that also be in reference to the prophet that we read about in the previous verses? Are they, is it potentially one and the same? 
I don't think so because the you don't think so. Okay. Well, because the prophet in the previous verses is killed. I mean, he's already out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'll just share with you the way. Um, well, hang on. No, no. Wait a wait, wait a minute. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, he is killed. It says it says that his mother and father shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Well, now who are we talking about then in verse uh, verse five, uh, four and five? Uh, he will say, "I am not a prophet. I am a farmer." For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth, and one will say to him, What are these wounds between your hands? Then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Do we, do we not connect that verse with uh, one of those false prophets or the false prophet that is being mentioned earlier on? Yeah, I think it is. I that is. Okay, but you wouldn't connect it with, uh, with verse 7 necessarily and I, say I, that that false prophet and the, and the shepherd, if, if verse 7 is, is meant to be read sardonically, uh, you wouldn't say that uh, those two are necessarily connected. Well, I, I put it this way. I don't think that's the way any uh, Jewish commentaries have read this chapter ever. Um, hmm. They usually... I'll, dis- tell, I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why I, I throw that into the mix, because yes. uh, I had a, uh, a Jewish friend of mine uh, who I won't mention by name, but the listeners would certainly know uh, his name if I were to mention it. And he came to me with this verse uh, with concern, great concern for his uh, Christian friends uh, and Christianity in, in general because he read this and he thought to himself, oh my goodness, this could very well be referring to Jesus, uh, someone who was, uh, what are these wounds between his hands? And he thought this could very well be referring to the false prophet, someone who um, uh, became a, a symbol, I suppose, of uh, idolatry in the land. And then uh, as, it, as it continues, a Waco sword against my shepherd. Of course, Jesus is referred to as a shepherd in the New Testament uh, and so on and so forth. And the, the way that he read it was that two-thirds of Christianity will, will be cut off from the land and, and another third and so on and so forth. He, he was quite concerned with that. And I suppose you would have to, and forgive the pun, but I suppose you would have to read that verse with Christian eyes looking at certain connections to make that leap. But is it a possibility? Well, that's, it's interesting. That's how almost all Jewish commentaries have read these verses between verse 7 and verse um, Nine, um, not about Jesus so much, but about Christianity. Interestingly enough, uh, really, basically, I'll, I'll, I, and again, I don't have a full handle on this because these are sort of um, they're difficult verses. But the way it's generally understood um, and has been understood over the past, you know, several thousand years, is that what's being spoken about here um, is, is really it's describing what's going to be going on in the world. Again, during this period of time before, almost immediately before the mm. coming of the Messiah. Yes. And they really, they, they almost speak about it as like what's going to be happening during this time that the, that the forerunner of the Messiah is here, this, this Messiah from the house of Joseph. And what they describe here is that, it's interesting, it, it is sardonic in that God is describing the leaders of the nations as his shepherds and his colleague, almost sardonically, mm-hmm. um, that these are, you know, in some way, what happened was that, you know, the, the fate of the Jewish people historically has always been somewhat in the hands of the nations of the world, meaning that, you know, all throughout our history, we weren't necessarily in the driver's seat. The Jewish people were always basically dancing to the tune and under the control and under the threats of uh, you know the major powers of the world, 
you know, in terms of Western religions, let's say that our our main, uh, you know, sort of the the the, the you know the, the the characters we've been dealing with mm. has been the world of Christendom and the world of Islam. So the, the commentaries basically see this reference to the shepherd here and the colleague of God as you know these powers, these great world powers of the world of Christendom and the world of Islam. Mm. And what the passage is really speaking about is that these, um, you know, it's not speaking about them as shepherds and colleagues of God in a, in a good sense. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, the good no. shepherds, so to speak. That they're, they're, it's really a description of them, uh, you know, in a negative way. In a and mocking tone. Mocking almost. tone. And it's basically saying mm. that um, these enemies, uh, of, they're enemies of God, really. Um, they're competitors to God. And that basically, um, you know, they're going to be scattered. The, en- the enemies are going to be scattered. Now, if if this connection, and this is speculative, obviously, but it needs to be thrown into the mix because it's, uh, historically speaking, this is the way that it's understood by some, then would it be fair to say that at least indirectly, here is the very first verse out of 365 that, as I said, possibly indirectly may be referring to Jesus? Well, again, I, I would say less about Jesus and more about the, the leaders of Christianity. Sure, I mean, that, that but, but by, uh, guilty by, by association, can I say that? Well, I mean, some people have actually taken the previous verse as, you know, re- referring to Jesus, meaning that right. um, I, I don't personally see it that way, but some people have said that, you know, in the end times, um, you know, there will be sort of a, um, you know, a clarity that Mm -hmm. is brought to all the people who claim to be prophets and it could be some of the commentaries point out that it it may even be that some people are going to be brought back for judgment at that time Mm -hmm. and god's going to make it clear that they were not true prophets um so there are people I, i just personally have a difficult time reading it that way but there are some people who will insert possibly jesus into um you know chapter 13 verse 6 Mm. Um, but I think that the succeeding verses, starting in verse 7, um, really uh, tend to be focusing more on the leaders of Christendom, the leaders of Islam, who basically have been in a, uh, um, you know, almost a depressive relationship towards the Jewish people over sure. their entire history. And basically what this concluding verses of chapter 13 are speaking about is that they're going to basically be scattered um, by God to the point where some commentaries say that you know it's going to be maybe only two, th- only a third of them are going to survive. Um, a third of them will somehow wake up and see and smell the coffee, and mm. they're going to ultimately you know turn towards God. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's um, it, it's ironic in that. Um, you know, it's almost understood in the exact opposite way of the way the list maker understands. The list maker, that's right. Well, the list maker uh, doesn't leave it there. It, it continues to milk Zechariah 13, uh, chapter 7, connects it with Matthew 27, verse 31. Uh, and when they had mocked him, they took off, off his robes and um, uh, put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. The messianic prophecy fulfilled is, uh, according to the list, a, a violent death. Yeah. Um, again, the assumption is that it's speaking about Jesus, um, mm. and I, I think that for the reasons that we suggested, it, it can't be referring to him. 
Uh, it's not speaking about something that happened in the first century. This is speaking about something that's going to be happening in the future, in the end times. Um, so it's just, but again, for some, speculatively, perhaps verse 6, if you want to go there. Possibly, yeah. I, I think mm. that's stretching things, though. Okay. The next one, uh, it connects with the same verse, uh, to John 14, verse 9. And that says, Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. Uh, he, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can, I, how can you say, show us the Father? Uh, the list maker says that this is a messianic prophecy fulfilled, that Jesus is both God and man. Yeah, this one had me scratching my head, um, because there's mm. no one in this verse that is both God and man. Um, you know, the passage speaks about God's enemies, God's enemies as, you know, the one that is God's competitor here. Um, Isn't that funny? I suppose, I suppose the reason why is because it says, you know, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. Uh, someone who is God's companion, I guess they're making the leap that that means the companion is also God. It reminds me of, uh, I think it's Isaiah chapter, is it chapter 48? Uh, and I'm just going to look it up now because it says... Uh, let me see. Okay, so it's chapter 46, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Yeah, that seems to be a refutation of this. Um, yeah. Because God is saying you can't compare anyone to him. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, I find it impossible to read this verse, verse 7 here, and see it saying that anyone uh, is both God and man. I mean, it's clearly to me, it's distinguishing between God and mm. these characters. Um, it's quite the, contra- con- quite the opposite. It's not saying that either the shepherd or this colleague uh, is God himself. It's saying mm. that they're, it's a different person, different uh, personality being contrasted here. The last one on our list for tonight, Michael, is... Uh, uh, it's uh, from Zechariah 13.7 again, bounces it to Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 in the New Testament, which says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you, uh, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So it's quoting from this verse, uh, and the messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list, Israel, Israel scattered as a result of rejecting him. Yeah, so the, the two major problems here, one we saw already, is that there's nothing in Zechariah that speaks about rejecting anyone. This is just, just literally an, an idea that's being forced into Zechariah by the list maker. I mean, you, you, you can read this chapter 40 times. Um, there's nothing about anyone being rejected. And secondly, you know, as we've seen, the group that's being scattered uh, are not the, not the Jews. It's not Israel. It's basically the enemies of Israel. Uh, the nations of the world here. Um, so again, you know, I would say at 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 best, this is an unclear passage because I would have a difficult time proving to someone that's skeptical that the shepherd here and the one who is God's colleague, you know, are really the enemies of Israel. Um, you know, I guess you know, if you wanted to leave this as unclear, I'm very happy leaving it as unclear. Um, but I think the important thing to remember is that when something is unclear, then it no longer serves as a proof for anyone. Meaning that I think that to say this is a clear proof that Jesus fulfilled some prophecy uh, or some prophecies fulfilled in Jesus is simply not the case. 
when there's an equally, or I would say actually much better, because of the, the fullness of the context really gives another... The context is much more compelling, yeah. Yeah. Very good. And that brings us to the end of this program. Next program is going to be entirely in the book of Malachi, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Thank you, my friend, for being back on the program. It's been a blast. Thank you. It's always wonderful. Until then, dear listeners, be blessed. Be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.